Hello, I'm Jonathan Smith. I'm the lead pastor at One Church TO, and you're listening to the teaching time from our weekend gathering. We're an imperfect community of over 70 nationalities and five generations who are attempting to follow and shine Jesus in the greater Toronto area. Our vision, it's so simple. We want to help people from all walks of life know God, love people, and in turn, impact our city for good. We've designed these weekends to be meaningful, challenging, and encouraging, and I hope that's what you get from listening. Well, good morning, One Church CO, and welcome to our brand new series, Planet Earth. Let me give you a little overview of what you can expect in the coming days. Next week, we're going to have Dr. Catherine Hayhoe, a Canadian climate scientist, join us to speak. Uh, She's a professor at Texas Tech University, uh, where she leads the client science department. Uh, She's been named by the United Nations in 2019 as a champion of the earth. What a title. I don't know how you get that. I guess you're smart, of science and innovation. Uh, If you Google her name, you're going to see her TED Talks, lots of resources available from Dr. Hayhoe. Why I'm so excited about it is it's not often we get an expert on the planet that will be joining us in our weekend gatherings, but also she's a follower of Jesus. She's married to a pastor. She grew up in the greater Toronto area, in fact, in Etobicoke, and she's going to explore God's second greatest gift. And she's going to be available at the end of each of our gatherings for a live Q&A. So all of those hard questions about the planet and science and what God has created, uh, keep those for Catherine. She's going to be with us next weekend. You're not going to want to miss that. And then in week three of our series, uh, Pastor Keith, our teaching pastor, is going to uh, tie up our series. And I'm so excited about this topic, God's plan to repair this planet. Because there's a lot of theology that people have adopted over the years that somehow the planet is disposable, that judgment's going to happen, everything gets burned up, so what does it matter? Well, the only thing is, is that's not what the Bible says. And Pastor Keith is going to help us understand what our role is in repairing this planet. Now, one of the reasons why I love that he's kind of ending this series is if you've listened to Pastor Keith for years, like I have, uh, he loves this planet. He loves this country. He loves nature. That's very evident in his teaching. And he's going to be teaching from a remote area here in our province. I'm looking forward to that. This week, I want to explore creation theology. Now, before you check out, because some of you might be saying, listen, creation I mean, that insinuates that there is a creator, and I'm not sure where I'm at. You may have even grown up in church, and the idea of God speaking into existence, this world and creation, maybe, maybe there's a bit of a stumbling block there. I'm glad you're here with us. And when it comes to theology, you might be saying, listen, Jonathan, I don't even know if I believe in God. I'm an atheist or an agnostic, or maybe I'm a follower of Jesus, and theology sounds pretty boring. (laughs) Well, listen, uh, theology is simply what we think about God. And it's actually, it doesn't matter where you are in that spectrum. If you don't believe there is a God, that impacts the way you live your life. And if you're a follower of Jesus or a follower of God, you know, your theology about God informs the way you live your life, the decisions you make, the purchases you make. See, theology is lived. It's something we live. It's lived every day in your life. You live your theology out. It's not what you believe. It's what you do that is actually revealing your theology. Here's one other thought around theology. Theology is dynamic. Theology is never meant to be static. It's meant to be dynamic. 
Now, here's why I think we lose a little of the emphasis of the dynamism of theology. It's because I think many Christians lock into a, a wading pool level of understanding about who God is, about scripture, uh, about, about doctrine. And then they go off to school and they dive into the deep end of academia and they wonder why their faith is drowning. Many Christians lose trust in the Bible because maybe something they were taught in Sunday school conflicts with some new science, scientific discovery or a factual narrative, and, and then they begin to struggle with their faith journey. Is this, can this be trusted? Let me use this as an illustration to help us understand the role of theology and even how we hold theology in our lives. Uh, do, you, do you know what this is? <laughs> this is a pair of vice grips. It's like a wrench, but it's a little different in that a vice grip locks onto something and it won't let it go. It's, it's strong and it locks right onto something. And a lot, I, I like to think every person who believes in God or every person in life, they have a vice grip of theology, you know, vice grip theology. And too often, I think Christians overuse vice grip theology. They overuse it on fringe theology. They overuse it on, on Christian culture. They overuse it on somehow their, their ideas of politics and faith being together. And they start locking in on many things that we're not totally sure about. The Bible certainly, and I'm going to mention it in a moment, some essential areas we lock on, but a lot of it is to be held a little bit looser than that because the Bible says we have limited understanding. We have limited perspective. And the person who used vice script theology may be better than anyone else. And I love that we get a first, we get a front row seat to watching them use vice script theology is the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul wrote in the New Testament, the later part of the Bible, he wrote the bulk of it, a lot of letters to churches that were emerging in that ancient culture. And what's interesting is if you ever have the opportunity, this is a really fun exercise. If you can Google this, if you'd like, you can chronologically see the letters that Paul wrote. And if you read it in chronological succession, you begin to see that Paul's theology changes as he matures. It's interesting. Paul, when he encounters new information or new understanding, he adapts his theology to it. Let me give you an example. One of the earliest, not the first, but one of the earliest letters Paul wrote was 1 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, he encourages the followers of Jesus to not get married, to remain single. Now, that's not because Paul wasn't for marriage. It was because he believed any minute now Jesus could return. And he knew that marriage, as anyone that is listening right now who's married, he knew that marriage was a lot of work and required a lot of energy to make it work well. So he said, why waste your time on that when you have very little time before Jesus returns to do the good in the world that he's called us to do? Then as you read in his later writings, his theology has matured, it's changed, it's adapted to new information and new understanding. He actually encourages people or followers of Jesus to get married. Now, it's interesting. He says, it's great to be, remain single. He elevates singlehood. But he also says, it's great to be married too. And he elevates marriage. Now, what changed in him? Well, the new information, the new understanding was Jesus hadn't come back in the time frame he thought. So he thought right away, well, we got to live in this world. Let's do it the Jesus way. 
Now, what's interesting is about Paul, I love the idea that he was able to adapt a theological stance based on new information in a new way without losing his faith. Why? Because he understood vice grip theology. If he had locked into his original idea about singlehood and, and not marriage, with the changing information, Jesus hadn't returned, he might have lost his faith. Because if that's not true, what else isn't true? See, Paul used this sparingly. He used vice grip theology on what was most essential. He locked in on the person of Jesus. You can read it throughout his writings. He's so locked in on what Jesus came to do for all of creation. The way he had, he had conquered sin and death and his victory was now applied to our lives. Jesus' great love for this world. He's locked in on that. So much so in his later writing to a church in Philippi, he would say something like this. He'd say, for to me, living means living for Christ. In other words, if I'm going to live this life, I'm living for Jesus and dying is even better. Oh man, what a thought. He's so locked in on the person of Jesus. He understands the temporary nature of everything we're passing through in this moment. And he's recognizing that I'm going to live this life the Jesus way. And ultimately, what do I get? I get Jesus. It's, it's an amazing story. It's an amazing narrative. For Paul, Jesus is the non-negotiable. Jesus is the center. Jesus is his foundation. Now, what does that have to do with creation theology? And more specifically, Genesis chapter 1. Well, a lot, actually. You see, most of us, if you grew up in church... You were taught Genesis chapter 1 as if it was a scientific narrative, that it was science. And I was certainly taught that in Sunday school, as opposed to an inspired interpretation of ancient literature where God is speaking to his people. See, here's a fact that will help us navigate our talk today. I think we'd all agree with this fact. The fact is simply this. The Bible is not a scientific book. It's not a science book. In talking to our resident theologian here at One Church TO, Dr. Van Johnson, this last week, we were talking about creation theology. We were talking about this very idea of the Bible not being a science book. And he said something profound, so I thought I'd share it with you. He said, it's important to remember that the Bible is not scientific history. The Bible is not economic history. The Bible is salvation history. In other words, in this book, there are 66 types of literature, ancient documents. It, remember, the Bible's more like a library. It's a library of different types of documents, and it tells a story. It's salvation history. It records how God uh, communicates and interacts with humanity, and how humanity reaches out to God. And it's a story of God after the original creation story and sin entered, and, and humanity got broken. And we can certainly see evidence of our world and our planet being broken right now. God didn't leave it alone, He came on a rescue mission for it. It's salvation history. You see, when we, when we make the Bible a scientific book, we set it up naturally to be in conflict with science. And then you're only left with a couple of alternatives. You can either close your eyes. You can close your eyes and just ignore the fact that the creation narrative and what we know in science seems to conflict with each other. Just pretend that tension isn't even there. Pretend it doesn't even exist. And for some people, I mean, 
We don't explore that space because we feel like we don't need to. Now, that's one option. The second option is to deny science. Well, if the creation narrative says this and science says this, science is wrong. And sadly, you know, there, you can go on YouTube, you can Google, you may have heard it in places. Sadly, there are pastors and ministries that make a living out of trying to undermine science. Because why, why did they do that? Because their interpretation of Genesis chapter 1, they have locked into that interpretation with a vice grip, so they can't let it go. So if science comes out with facts or an understanding that conflicts with it, science has to be wrong. And so they build their life, ministry, and faith around that. The third reality is you could deny your faith. And again, sadly, many young people do that. Uh, they, they begin to venture into life and they see, they, they can see in the creation narrative that if the Bible is wrong here somehow, that when they learn new things in science about the creation of the world, how long the world has existed, uh, how it's developed, and they, they see science saying this and their Sunday school lesson said that, then, then something's incongruent, something's wrong. Hey, maybe you can't trust the Bible. And if you can't trust the Bible, how can you trust Jesus? As new scientific facts get revealed, if they conflict with that narrative, something's wrong. But friends, that dichotomy actually doesn't have to exist. That maybe we don't have a science and faith problem. Maybe we have a reading and understanding problem. Uh, please hear this, friends. Science is not the enemy of faith. And faith is not the enemy of science. Some of the greatest scientists in human history, and even in recent history, are followers of Jesus. They don't need to conflict one with the other. The beautiful thing about God is God loves truth. God embodies truth. God is truth. God reveals truth. So any truth that gets revealed that's a revelation that God gives us. So truth is not something to be avoided, fought, but embraced. So this Wednesday, actually at 7 o'clock, Dr. Peter Newman, uh, he's the academic dean at Master's College, is going to join me for a conversation about faith and science and about the creation narrative. And I would really encourage you to join me Wednesday at 7 o'clock. And as I talk today, if you have any questions about, maybe I provoke something in you. Maybe you're just like, Jonathan, you can't be right. And I may not be. So let's, let's talk about that. Put it in the chat room, any questions you have. Our hosts are curating them. So on Wednesday, Peter and I can have a conversation and he can answer those questions. You can join us live. You can ask questions on the fly. It's going to be a great evening as we explore truth, as we explore truth together. So let's explore creation theology a little bit and let's lean in with Genesis chapter 1. And it all starts in verse 1. In the beginning... Can you finish that sentence? Even if you're not uh, familiar with the Bible, likely you can because this verse has been quoted in so many movies and popular culture. And of course, if you've read the Bible, you know it's the starting point. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I want you to notice that in the very first verse of the, the Bible, the very first verse of Genesis, it addresses the key theme of the first chapter in Genesis, which is who? Who created the earth? God. You see, most of the conflict around the creation narrative doesn't have to do with who, it's how thoughts. How did God create the earth? 
But the, the problem with it is the Bible gives us one chapter on how the earth is created, and then hundreds of chapters on why and who. Hundreds of chapters. In fact, over the next couple of weeks, Dr. Hayhoe and Pastor Keith are going to talk a little bit more about the why. Why did God create the earth? But I want to take a moment and I want to explore how. How? Did God create the earth in six literal days? Is that what he did? In six literal days? Is the earth only 10,000 years old? Do the, does the creation narrative and the science narrative need to be in conflict with each other? Well, I want to explore it by, and I'm really indebted to some great thoughts here from biblical scholars and academic people and the BioLogos Foundation, which has a number of resources. And I'm going to summarize the five most popular interpretations of Genesis chapter 1. Maybe you can find yourself in one of these interpretations. And I want to explore it a little bit because this has some strong implications to how we live our life. So let's look at the first one. The first one is the young earth interpretation. Now, this is what I learned in Sunday school. In the young earth interpretation, would say in Genesis chapter 1, it would say that the planet is 10,000 years old. Now, how did they get that number? Well, what they did is they took the genealogies mentioned in the scriptures and they kind of worked their way back and they figured the earth is about 10,000 years old. So the young earth interpretation says it's, it's a young planet, 10,000 years old, and it was created in six literal days. So the young earth interpretation would say that Genesis chapter one is a literal historic account of what actually happened. Uh, then we have the second one. The day-age interpretation. And the day-age interpretation would say the planet is actually billions of years old. Billions of years old. But it was created in six days. It's just those days weren't 24-hour periods. Each day, and some of them take it from the Apostle Peter's writing when he talks about a day is of, of 10,000 years. But the, each day is a million or a billion times. Long, uh, millions of years or thousands of years long. So while God created the earth billions of years ago, uh, it's been over a period of billions of years, but it's been six days. Then the third one, the appearance of age interpretation. Again, back to the young earth one. The earth is only 10,000 years old. It was created in six literal days, but here's the little caveat they add. But when God created the earth, it was created to look older than it is. So... You know, it was, it was kind of like being a newborn, but being born like a senior citizen kind of thing. It, you're created to look older than you might really be. Well, that's, that's the, the, the appearance of age interpretation. So those three kind of belong in the category by themselves. There's two more that are popular. The, the next one has to do with creation poem interpretation. And this is an interesting one because it's kind of re recognizing the diversity of the literature found in the Bible. Remember I said it's 66 different documents, ancient documents that make up our Bible. And some of them are apocalyptic literature, some of them are historical, but there's poetic books in it. And of course, the poetry is interesting. It's littered throughout. Even into Paul's letters, you can find some poetry there. So it was a popular way of communication in that ancient culture. And what they do is they look at Genesis chapter 1, and there's a rhythm to each day and a repetition that is very poetic in nature. So in this poem interpretation, they would say that Genesis chapter 1 is not scientific. 
It's poetic, actually. And the who created the earth is the central theme of Genesis chapter 1 rather than how it was created. So in this interpretation, they'd say it's not explaining the how, it's explaining the who did it. Now, here's the last one, and this is one I'd invite you to lean on to really consider. It's the ancient Near East interpretation. The idea behind this is God's not revealing new scientific information here. He's just not doing that. It's not what the point of Genesis chapter 1 is. You see, Moses wrote the book of Genesis. It's not the oldest book in the Bible. Job is. But Moses wrote the book of Genesis about the beginning to an ancient Israelite people. And surrounding them were the Egyptians, the Babylonians, the Canaanites, and all of those ancient cultures had a very similar understanding of what the world looked like and how it operated. So the idea was in the waters, in the the chaotic dark waters up from it, God caused the earth to rise up from the waters and it formed the, the land that we are all standing on right now. And in that ancient culture, they believed that there was a solid dome over the earth. Solid dome that had water held above it. The sky was blue for a reason. It was water being held up there. And occasionally it would leak, rain or, or flood. Now that kind of sounds foreign and maybe even a little archaic to our modern ears because science has helped us to understand the world to operate a little differently. But if you're going to read Genesis chapter 1 in a literal interpretation, it would require you to believe that there's a solid dome, not a gaseous atmosphere over this planet. It would be required to do that. Now, why would God give that information that way to those people? Did God not know how his planet operated, what he did? Well, of course he knew. He knew there was an atmosphere. He knew that the planet was round, spherical in nature, and not flat. Because the ancient culture believed the world was flat. That's how they experienced it. See, it's not so much that God didn't know, but can you imagine if he had introduced in Genesis chapter 1 all that new information, new scientific information, and he, and he told those, that ancient culture, hey, there's, a, there's an atmosphere, there's an ozone layer, uh, that there's the cloud and the cumulus and how it all works, and, and that, that the world is actually spherical in nature and not flat. Well, they wouldn't have understood. That was way outside the realms of what they knew and they understood. And more importantly, they wouldn't have got the point of Genesis chapter 1. God is not introducing new scientific information to that ancient culture. What he's doing is he's introducing the who. He's reminding them who created this world. See, what, what, what God is doing in that first chapter, in this Near Eastern interpretation of Genesis 1, is God is accommodating the message of creation to people's understanding at the time. He's accommodating. In other words, he's speaking their language. He's speaking their language because the primary message of Genesis chapter 1 is not how, but who. Who? See, Genesis is not meant to be scientific in nature. Uh, It's not dealing with the how or even really the when. It's focused on the who and the why. The who and the why. And that's important to recognize, friends, because, you know, when you look at all of those five interpretations of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1, listen, I got good news for you. You can believe in any of them and still be a follower of Jesus. 
But certainly science would seem to undercut some of them and elevate others of them. Here's what we need to understand about truth or when new truth gets introduced to us. We need to always remember that whenever truth collides with belief, belief is what I, what I hold on to, but whenever truth collides with my belief, I need to always remember it's truth that sets me free. It's truth that sets me free. Here's what I mean. We're going through a tough time. Uh, if you're viewing from another part of the world, you might not know what's going on in Toronto or Ontario at this time, but the pandemic has really ratcheted up in this season, and this is a difficult time for everyone. Throughout this pandemic, One Church TO, we have tried to make decisions not based on our belief, but based on truth. So uh, I'll sometimes get people to ask, they'll ask me, what do I believe about the vaccines or the pandemic? And I want to say, like, what do you care what a pastor believes about a pandemic or vaccines? I, I, I care a lot about what an epidemiologist might or an, uh, a virologist might. I, I care a lot about what they think because they have access to some truth that I don't have access to in my everyday life. And so we've based our decisions throughout this pandemic based on science, the available science at the time, uh, in consultation with some epidemiologists and healthcare professionals. Because I'm not afraid of truth. God loves truth. Truth sets me free every time. So whenever your belief, whatever belief it is you form, and it encounters truth, just like Paul did when Jesus hadn't returned when he thought he would, he, he quickly made adjustments. Why? Because truth is what we all want. Truth is what we actually need. In the ancient Near Eastern interpretation, it allows you to hold firmly to your faith while holding on to whatever scientific truths are available at this time. See, regardless of what you believe, all five interpretations do, and I love how this Dr. Lauren uh, Harzma says, all of them agree on this, that God is the one true God. Every one of those interpretations, Genesis chapter one and the preceding chapters, nail that down. God is the one true God. And listen to this, he created the world. See, the truth is in Genesis chapter one and over and over, that it's always affirmed in scripture. I believe with all my heart, God created this world. The order, the beauty of it, the complicated nature of it, only a higher being could be a part of architecting all of that. The how I don't get as much, but I know he created this world, and I love this, and he called it good. What a wonderful world. And friends, you're a part of his creation. You might not feel good. Yeah, you might not be in a type of season where you feel like you're a good person or you're going, things are going well. <laughs> I get it. But today your creator would say this, that he made this world and he called it good. And that includes you. And I know that sin and brokenness and all kinds of toxicity in this world pollutes that in our souls, in our bodies, and in this planet. I, I want to leave you with this thought, just to encourage you today. There are some things in life worth locking onto, and there are others you should hold a little bit looser, because you have limited understanding, and so do I. Paul locked in on the person of Jesus, and I want to tell you, through COVID, 
through life and through this series, Planet Earth, my hope is by journeying with us, you would further lock into the person of Jesus. Now, one of the things about a pair of vice grips I didn't explain was it has this little knob on the end and you can just screw it slowly and what it does is it tightens the grip that the vice grip has on whatever you place it on. And every time we read God's word, every time we come to a gathering like this and we sing these beautiful songs that Natalie led us in earlier, what we're doing is we're tightening the grip on the person of Jesus. So come what may in this life, Come what difficulties we may face. Come what new realities or new truth comes our way. We don't have to lose our faith because we weren't locked into fringe theology or locked into vague uh, notions or even just culturally uh, trending issues. No, we were locked on the person of Jesus. Friends, the truth is he came here not just to redeem you, but to redeem this world and he's locked in on you. Let me pray with you. Father, I thank you for your word. It not only inspires us and encourages us, it challenges us, God. And God, we, we depend on your Holy Spirit illuminating your truth to us, your people. And God, we give thanks right now for all of the medical professionals, all of the engineers and people that are a part of our church community that give so much to us in this world and in this life by way of science. We're thankful for them, God. And God, we are thankful as people of faith that we can be fully engaged with our heart and mind as we journey to know you deeper and better. And God, we acknowledge today We all, no matter how smart we are, no matter how strong we are, we all see in part, but you see in whole. So God, we commit ourselves to you today. We trust you to be our guide through this life. We want to do it the Jesus way. And I pray, God, that you would be with us, you would walk with us, and we in turn would walk with you. Thank you for creating this earth and for giving us life. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you found this helpful, we hope you join us at one of our campuses if you're in the GTA for a weekend gathering. If you're listening from somewhere else in the world, we'd encourage you to join us at onechurch.to slash live. We believe everyone can be a part of what Jesus is doing, both in our community and in our city. So if you'd like to connect with us at a deeper level, visit us at onechurch.to slash next steps. See you next time.